Hey, my name is Cass, and welcome to Real Life Christian Motherhood. Today I'm going to read you a post I wrote a couple years ago that addresses something that really gets my blood boiling when it comes to Christian motherhood. And that's the mentality that mothers must be doing something wrong if their journey through motherhood isn't filled with cotton candy smiles and deeply felt fulfillment. If you've ever felt less than encouraged by the platitude-heavy blanket statement advice given to you that says, just keep sacrificing more of yourself even though you feel like you're dead inside as a mother, then this post is for you. I hope you like it. As someone who genuinely struggles with the calling of motherhood, I'm sad to say I find most books on the topic are less than encouraging. Some people at my church had recently recommended the book Fit to Burst to me, and I thought I'd give it a chance. I definitely had some reservations about it, knowing it was written by the author of Loving the Little Years, a book I had already chosen not to read despite knowing quite a few of my friends who had read it. This may sound shallow, but I confess it was the title of Loving the Little Years that instantly turned me off to it. I was pretty sure there was no possible way anyone could get me to quote-unquote love the little years, especially when these little years are hopefully not representative of the overall behavioral arc of my children over their lifetime. Kids are meant to grow up. They are not meant to be little and insane forever. Why would I want to settle into loving this time in my kids' lives when it mostly comes down to hard manual labor, the shameless manifestation of the sin nature we are all born with proceeding from both them and I in profound quantities, and an intense level of both abject busyness and mind-numbing boredom. In my mind, the point is to get through these little years, not to snuggle up to them. Okay, so I'll give Fit to Burst a chance, I thought. It's shorter, so there's not a lot of time commitment there. But a couple pages in, I'm already shaking my head. She's speaking about sacrificing for one's children here, trying to squash the idea that Christian moms are ever allowed to say the words, But who's looking out for me? I have needs. Those are her words, not mine, by the way. Um, she goes on, when you find yourself getting stuck in a needing mentality, you will look for ways to give and you won't look for ways to give just because you have to. And it is a terrible Christian duty. It is our duty. But when we faithfully obey as unto the Lord, we are given great joy, great satisfaction and great fulfillment in the task. When you empty yourself for others, God fills you up. Page 15. First of all, I'm going to ignore not only how poorly worded this quote is, but how saturated it is with blanket statement logic and Christianese. Second of all, what she says about looking for ways to give when one suddenly finds oneself in a needing mentality seems good and Christiany on the outside, but can play out in dangerous ways in people's lives. I say this because I've seen it, and you probably have too. Yes, the Bible advocates loving one's neighbor over oneself and giving instead of getting. Absolutely, 100%. But what about all the people who know the true meaning of the term burned out? I know many Christians who discover to their immense dismay at some point along their journey that their dogged, perhaps overly simplistic obedience to the Christian concept of altruistic giving has taken a toll on them. What this quote and these overwhelmed midlife crisis-esque Christians forget is the resources for the level of giving that God wants us to participate in need to come from his vast store of emotional and spiritual wealth, not ours. It's clumsy and ridiculous to look a weary, bedraggled, unfulfilled mother who knows she's doing the best she can and is still suffering for it, straight in the face and say, well, I guess you just need to be giving out more of yourself. Surely that's the answer. Giving is the fruit of our walk with God, not the source of it. The answer is in finding refreshment in him and drawing from his resources in order that we might then give. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John fifteen five. Apart from him, there is no giving at all. 
This is a major order of operations issue that has severely harmed the faith of many Christians, especially, it seems, those in leadership positions. These people who were perhaps perceived as strong at one point, sooner or later found out the hard way that the strength they relied on when it came to serving God was found within themselves the entire time. Perhaps a more encouraging thing to say to the bedraggled mother is to compassionately remind her that her acute awareness of how difficult mothering is serves to remind her of one of the main tenets of the gospel, that we can't do this stuff by ourselves, any of it. We can't save ourselves from eternal damnation, and we can't save ourselves from struggling with lives of stressed out mothers. It's the whole reason Jesus came to earth and the whole reason why I love following him, because he graciously offers everything I need and my only job is to receive it. He's that good. We were never meant to do the work of God from our own resources and stores. Ironically, the way to do the task God has set before us is not to attempt to do them at all in our own, in our own strength, but instead to run full speed towards Jesus, not the task, by the way, in order to receive those resources that will in turn and in time bear much fruit. So let's say we get the order of operations right and we are giving from a place of at least relative fullness that we have received from God, meaning we are praying all day for strength, we are actively moment by moment abiding in Him, we are living out our trust in Him so effectively that we are yelling at the kids less, etc. I would argue that it's still possible to experience very little of the great joy, great satisfaction, and great fulfillment in the task that the author is speaking of, the key words there being in the task. This is especially true about being a mother. Let's use a surprisingly equivalent servile calling, that of pastors or church leaders, to hold up next to the plight of a Christian mother. Pastors and church leaders may spend all day, five or six work days a week, dealing with people's crazy problems. But the people with the crazy problems that they are attempting to shepherd shepherd towards Jesus don't live in their house. As parents, there is no break from the crazy sinful people that we are trying to bring to Jesus. Except maybe we can lock ourselves in the bathroom or something, but we can't hide there forever because those little velociraptors are rattling the knob and have figured out how to turn it. So here we are with our mothering marathon and all our giving out and just how intense the whole affair is, and we are told we should be experiencing all this joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. Even at my best times as a mother, and by best times I mean the times when I am actually depending on God for my strength, I find very little joy, satisfaction, or fulfillment in what I'm doing. This is not to say that God is withholding those things from me or that I am not doing or that I am doing motherhood all wrong. When we sacrifice for God and obey what he tells us to do, it is always a good thing and never a waste of our time. There will be fruit from it, as John 15 says, much fruit. Everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times more in return and will inherit eternal life, Matthew 19:29. But I think it's inaccurate at best to assume that just because we are doing something for God that we must be getting some kind of personal affirming instantaneous emotional blessing from it. Plenty of people in the Bible knew this to be true. Let's talk about Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, by the way who was given the task of saying the words of God to a people who would never believe him. And he knew they would never believe him because God told him so. Talk about redefining success. Or what about Joseph and his 13 or 14 years of unjust imprisonment? God eventually used prisoner-turned-politician Joseph to save the known world from a terrible famine. But don't tell me there's no trauma in the meaning of the names he picked out for his sons. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. Genesis 41, verses 51 and 52. 
to forget my troubles, my family, the land of my grief. He recognizes God has brought him through his hard times. But one gets the picture that once he became an Egyptian higher up, he's not thinking back to how joyful and fulfilling it was to spend the best years of his life rising to the high ranks of slightly more respected than usual prisoner. Joseph doesn't sugarcoat his prison years. He's a normal, sensible human being, and he's grateful he gets to move on from those years. All the while recognizing, with truly commendable faith, that God had a hand in the whole thing, especially the hard parts. Genesis 45, verse 5, and then 7 through 8. Let's talk about Jesus himself praying so hard that he starts bleeding through his pores in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking God to rescue him from the meaning of his life, namely a horrible death on a cross. Or his crying out in spiritual and physical agony while being crucified, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These moments of great pain and sacrifice were just exactly that. Moments of great pain and sacrifice. I'm not saying there wasn't, you know, quote-unquote joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment in Jesus' heart as he served God by letting himself be tortured for our salvation, but... I think those moments were mostly about the sacrifice and obedience and not the beauty of giving. There's not always warm fuzzies included in obeying God. And as far as being a mother of little kids goes, I find more warm fuzzies in the sacrifice and giving that I do outside the home than I ever do within it towards my kids. And yet how can it be argued that giving the, the giving done outside my stay-at-home mom world is more important than raising well-adjusted, God-honoring kids who happen to be profoundly sinful and really frustrating to deal with day in and day out? Joy and satisfaction don't always come in our moments of intense sacrifice, but that doesn't mean they won't come later on, even if later on means after we die and are with God. Our God will always keep his promises, but we simply do not have control over when and how that will happen. This is why it's so terrible that books about mothering or parenthood can be so discouraging and downright guilt trip inducing. What mothers need, especially those whose temperament or personality excludes them from from loving the little years, is a reminder all struggling Christians need to get our strength and joy and fulfillment from our relationship with him and not from the deeds we do in this life. The cart can't go before the horse if you want this thing called life and Christianity and motherhood to not make you crazy and bitter and depleted in the end. I refuse to agree with fit to burst hard-handed workspace, just suck it up and give more and everything will be fine, approach to the difficult, painful job I'm doing as a mother. I may be broken in half every day by this job, but I know the answer to my problem is a who, not a what. It's not my job to pull myself out of this by my bootstraps. It's my job to keep coming to Jesus again and again so that he can do the work and get all the credit for the life he has purchased for me by his blood. Even if sometimes the life he's given me makes me a little crazy. And even then, it just pushes me towards him all the more, which is truly the only thing I've ever needed in the first place. Not deliverance from my problems, but closeness with him. If you like these episodes, you can follow me on Spotify, share this episode with a friend, or hop over to my newsletter, The Sanitarium, and sign up for the written version of these podcasts to be sent to your inbox. You can find a link to the transcript of this podcast in the description. Cheers, and thanks for listening.